politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, taxpayers, and scorned and forgotten Americans to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house today on Thursday, April 22nd. And my friends, there is so much to talk about. It's one of those days where I'm just chasing my tail. Do I talk about all of the news on crime and BLM, a.k.a. KKK, legalizing crime as long as the color of your skin is sufficiently dark enough, but treating everyone who is white as a criminal for being born, the consequences of this war on whites, war on criminal justice, war on victims of crime, war on the cops. Do I talk about all of the Republican governors in all of these red states betraying us on one issue after another that is so radical, transgenderism, COVID fascism, and um, certainly the criminal issue too. Do we talk about the Supreme Court screwing us left and right, the Republican appointees? Do we talk about all the news on COVID fascism that I missed this week, you know, as we were focusing more on the crime stuff and more and more news proving us right on every aspect of this, from the masks to the vaccines to the epidemiological curves and the lack of efficacy of non-pharmaceutical interventions and the likewise, the strong efficacy of vitamin D and things like that. There's so many more studies out. We're going to have special guests on tomorrow to discuss more of that. But the sum total of all of it is this. We don't have a political party that represents us. They're both against us. So the only difference is that in states where you have an overwhelming majority of conservatives, the Republican Party has to do enough to market themselves and indulge and subterfuge and lie to us in a way that keeps our people at bay, but essentially ensures the outcome of the Democrats is implemented. You see, as my buddy Steve Day said yesterday, and he said this throughout the years, but he reminded me when I was on the show with him, now more than ever, we could apply his adage that we are never and were never really a country of the rule of law. We're a country of political will. So it's not like, oh, well, the law says this. Well, you got to do this. No. If the political will is that they want something to get done, it will get done even if it's antithetical to what the law says. If the political will is not there, then even the plain law won't be implemented. And that's what we're seeing. The political will on every issue that matters is inexorably in one direction because we only have one political party in this country. I don't know how you get around that. Our side of the story doesn't get out. Our narrative doesn't get out, which is how the media and the Democrats are able to get away with flipping reality on its head. A man's a woman, criminal victim, you know, a prevailing narrative they'll make you know, where really the criminals are the problem, but now it's the police are the problem because Republicans go along with it. 
oh, just don't riot, but you're right, we need police reform. We, this is becoming a problem. We, we do have some racism going on. That's the sum total of all of it. We're going to try to unpack as much of it as we can today. Our sponsor today is Patriot Mobile. For those complaining that they are sick and tired of funding corporate America that is promoting the criminals and transgenderism and all this stuff, well, Patriot Mobile has now expanded dramatically their coverage, and they make it pretty easy for you to ditch the big carriers that are giving your money to the left. Obviously, Patriot Mobile does the exact opposite. They're America's only Christian conservative wireless provider. You could switch with confidence because they use the same network um, as large providers, and they actually charge much less. You could keep your existing phone, your existing phone number, build your own bundle with multi-line discounts, and save even more. Go to patriotmobile.com slash CR or call their U.S.-based customer service team with someone you could actually understand at the end of the line, 972-PATRIOT. That's 972-PATRIOT. Veterans and first responders save even more. This month, our audience could get free premiere activation where they set up the phone for you and a special gift with offer code CR. So go to patriotmobile.com slash CR, offer code CR, patriotmobile.com slash CR or 972-PATRIOT. Now, folks, obviously I was going to talk all about crime today. But I do want to start off with the Supreme Court just because it's fresh in my mind and it just happened. Now, you might think, well, what Supreme Court? I've written a lot about this. I've spoken a lot about this for those of you who are with me for a while, but we have a lot of new people in this audience. So I want to go over this line of cases, and I hope I don't want to spend too much time on it. Jones v. Mississippi. It's a case of life without parole for someone committing murder as a a juvenile. And really, what's beautiful about this is it sets up on the political side exactly what the main discussion is today with the left saying that they value the life of juvenile murderers over juvenile victims. So this really gives the legal sense to it, but also demonstrates that the same way we have Republicans buying into criminal justice deform for juvenile murderers, we have Republican-appointed judges that are the same way. And the reality is very simple. Because the left controls the prevailing culture, there is no political will Even where people intellectually on our side go to the Federalist Society, they go to law school, they become professors of law, and they understand that certain cases and certain court decisions are BS. But if they get on the Supreme Court, there is no political will to reverse a single bad opinion. So it actually, the, the, the court discussion for today and the criminal discussion literally merge together. You know, because we're all talking about the Cincinnati case and the Columbus case. We'll get to in a moment. But basically, let me give you some background here. Some of you might see today, oh, you know, on a you know criminal case, life without parole, conservatives won a victory. The state of Mississippi won a victory against the criminal defendant. And, um, you know... 
that this is a nice victory. It was six to three. In other words, even Roberts joined in all of the Republican appointees. Wow, okay, this is nice. We actually won a, a victory in a big case. But like always, if you read what they actually do, it's a pyrrhic victory, and it actually demonstrates the limitations of what we can expect from the non-Clarence Thomas justices. It's always Clarence Thomas concurring in judgment alone. Always. So let's unpack this. Let's unpack this. Um, in 2012, Alabama v. Uh, Montgomery, or Montgomery v. Alabama, no, I'm sorry. I'm mixing up Miller v. Alabama. It's a Miller case, 2012. After, you know, 200 and whatever years, the court rules that basically life without parole for juveniles violates the Eighth Amendment. It's cruel and unusual punishment. Now, you might ask, how in the world could a court do that after 220 years of that being in practice in the country while the Constitution was ratified? But, you know, it answers itself because they do that all the time, because the Constitution is unconstitutional. Okay? But that's basically what they did, just out of nowhere. And, and again, that in itself is an important lesson here. Because, you know, we're always, we're talking about Republicans, judges, if they're willing to overturn bad precedent, everything the left does, by definition, is overturning precedent because they invent them. But, you know, they, they could, at any point, they could do what they want. Then the minute they concoct that, our supposed side views that as the precedent. They might say in a law school room that, yeah, it doesn't comport with the Constitution, but they don't have the political will to go after it. So basically, this started already in 2005 in Roper v. Simmons. Anthony Kennedy overturned the 1989 decision and ruled that the evolving standards of decency is a famous Roper case that capital punishment for juveniles violates the Eighth Amendment. Boom. Gone. Done. Then he continues in Grand v. Florida in 2010, and Kennedy, joined by the liberals and John Roberts, ruled that life in prison without parole for a juvenile is unconstitutional, like if it's like child sex assault they do or something like really heinous, it, it, except for murder. And then two years later, of course, in Miller v. Alabama, they say, well, you actually can't do it for murder either. Now, they didn't categorically ban the individual sentencing to life. What they banned was a categorical law passed by the state legislature to mandate it for everyone. What, so what they basically said is that if you want to, if you want a juvenile, John Doe, juvenile murderer, to serve life without parole, you have to have an individualized procedural process for him where the judge can't just rely on a mandatory. He has to decide it for that person. Say, look, look, I believe, yeah, you, uh, you know, we, we believe based on your situation, um, you deserve it. But the, but the legislature can't carte blanche, 
mandate. Now, that one, Roberts didn't side with Kennedy, but then a few years later, Montgomery v. Louisiana, the court retroactively applied Miller v. Alabama. So they applied it even to people already in the pipeline, already sentenced. It reopened the sentencing for all these juvenile murders, the worst human beings alive. Roughly 2,500 people it affected. And Roberts, who wrote the dissent in Miller, bizarrely joined in with Montgomery. Because that's his shtick. Once it's it could be fresh and new, violate 200 years of precedent. But once it's there, then not only didn't he overturn it, he actually expanded it, applied it retroactively. Now, technically, in what the judgment actually does in Montgomery is kind of just takes Miller v. Alabama and applies it retroactively. Just it's more process, like the, the same process for an individualized hearing that you have to have for a defendant in this situation, a juvenile it's not just the ones prospectively, it's even retroactively. But if you look at the language of Montgomery, it's juicier than Alabama. Meaning, they really go into um, Eighth Amendment, and they really just say, like, you know, most people, most kids really shouldn't get it. it you know, it's only if they're incorrigible, and you need to hold an individualized hearing to make sure he's incorrigible. So... There's this case there, Brett Jones murdered his grandfather in Mississippi when he was 15 years old. Um, Obviously, at the time of his trial and sentencing, Mississippi law automatically punished him with life without parole. A few years later, he obviously had the Miller case that said you have to have an individualized sentencing process. Okay, so he had that, right? They, They ordered that. But now Jones wants to cite Montgomery and say, Wait a minute. Montgomery makes Miller's ruling substantive, not just retroactive, but it makes it more substantive. Meaning, what they want to say basically is that it's not just that you have to have an individualized determination, but almost creating standards that the judge has to make a specific finding that he's irretrievably depraved, irreparably corrupt, and permanently incorrigible. Meaning, so it's not just, hey, no, I'm finding John Doe. It's almost like the judge has to show his work more and really make make a finding. Okay? So, basically, what the majority did, written by Kavanaugh, that Roberts and all the Republican appointees signed on to, was that, no, no, Montgomery doesn't go that far. It doesn't force him to make a finding. Just as long as you have, uh, you know, the thing. And in comes Thomas with a a concurrence in judgment. He's like, well, yeah, the court correctly holds that the Eighth Amendment doesn't require a finding that a minor be permanently incorrigible as a prerequisite to sentencing life without parole. But in reaching that result, the majority adopts a strained reading of Montgomery instead of outright admitting that it is irreconcilable with Miller v. Alabama and the Constitution. And the better approach would have just been to say that the whole thing is outright false and reject Montgomery and really Miller too. 
Because I, I think Thomas's point, and I don't want to get into the weeds because it's not the point here. Thomas's point is that actually if you agree to Montgomery, then the, play, the, the, the defendant here, criminal defendant, does have a good argument that it kind of sounds like you have to have a finding from it. I don't know how I feel because to me, I don't need to analyze a piece of crap, what the crap means. The point is it's illegitimate. Why am I giving you all this? Very simply. Because we're already at the fifth level of unconstitutional jurisprudence. Roper, then Florida, then Miller, then Montgomery. Now you have Jones and like, okay, Jones is a step too far. But the first four things they accepted, the most radical notion that life without parole, much less the death penalty, which was done for 200 years, somehow violates the Constitution. Again, we're not talking about whether you believe politically it should be done, but that the Constitution precludes it. And implicitly, everyone except for Thomas is willing to accept that. They will not even overturn Montgomery of 2014, much less Miller of 2010, 2012, much less Florida of 2010, much less Roper of 2005. And you mean to tell me that there's a shred of hope these people are going to overturn Roe v. Wade from 1973? It's a joke. It's a scam. It's not a matter of an originalist, a federalist society, a conservative, Republican. No, it's the political will, and they don't have it. Whatever the left does, no matter how immoral, illogical, illegitimate, and most importantly, illegal, the law is plain. But if the other side makes it that that's politically untouchable, even though you could, it, it's not necessarily true, they won't touch it. All the Democrats have to do is say, hands off. And Republicans and their judicial appointments are like, okay. So it was like a victory that all the Republican justices didn't expand this, like expanding Roe v. Wade. Meaning often they expand it. Sometimes they don't. That's the ratchet. The one-way street. Never roll back anything they do. So inexorably you always move forward. And this is emblematic and really a good metaphor for not just the judicial branch but the political branches as well. And they're All three are political. That everything is a one-way ratchet. Whatever the left does, that is the new baseline. Your breathing is criminalized. Lockdown. It's a question of, okay, will we do it in this fashion? Even more extreme. But that is, it's not like, wait, you guys did what? That needs to be ripped to shreds. Nope. Nope. If tomorrow the Supreme Court said that in order to foster diversity... One member of each family has to get a sex change operation. That would become binding precedent for conservative judges. And the only question there, henceforth are the details of the operation and how many and how often. I, I, I just, I couldn't resist. And I know you guys are smart and mature enough to handle a show like this, 
you know, the, rather than some of the empty calories of the Sean Hannity's of the world. So, uh, you know, without getting too into the case itself, I, I wanted you guys to just to get the contours of how post-constitutional jurisprudence develops and even the most recent outlandish stuff, they won't reverse. They never, ever reverse anything the other side does, even if that thing is so illegitimate, so illegal, and a reversal of 200 years before that. It's just a question of whether we add to it or not. So in case some of you have seen that we won a court case today, just make sure you have the proper perspective on it. But speaking of juvenile crime, look, as always, those of you who listen to this show are ahead of the curve. You understand that the left for quite some time, and and most Republicans have adopted this, this premise that basically children are able to commit crimes. No problem. If you're under 18, crime, including murder, has been legalized, essentially. Now, folks, just just a word from a sponsor today. I want, want you guys to know. Everyone's like, well, I'll carry my gun. But do you know how to win a gunfight? Do you know how to properly operate your gun, draw and shoot from the holster, clear malfunctions? Well, you come on our next trip to constitutioncoach.com. I'll see a lot of you on Monday. But our next one is May 30th and June 6th. There's two-day and four-day training options where we study the Constitution at night. And during the day, we spend all day out in the Front Sight Nevada desert training um, with the best instructors around. Um, it's truly terrific. It's 90% off the Front Sight cost. So, you know, a 1500 course is the two days is like $100. Uh, the four days, $150. It's it's unbelievable bargain. Yes, ammo is expensive. Yes, you know, you got the plane ticket and things like that, but make a vacation out of it. Make this your early summer vacation. Um, we could strategize together, form Liberty Strike Force teams together. You get to meet me and other people from the audience. So again, go to constitutioncoach.com for your best vacation that includes political and physical ammo. Now, you're going to need that ammo on the streets because basically we now live in a society where let kids be kids means they could stab each other, but they can't learn without a mask for a virus that doesn't affect them. So obviously you're seeing a lot of news yesterday where the left, and this is a very telling moment, a tale of two cases, two juvenile girls Murdering or attempting to murder with a knife. One, the left is outraged about the outcome. One, the situation worked for them. You had a case this week in Cincinnati where a 13-year-old girl in school took a pocket knife and stabbed another girl in the neck, and she died. A pocket knife. Okay, not a buoy knife. Pocket knife. Okay, lethal, things could turn lethal pretty quickly. You never hear about it. No problem. No problem. And she'll, of course, be out before she's 18, if, if she serves a day, which is very questionable. And there's no problem, because 
the perpetrator wasn't shot by police, so there's no problem. Well, you say, well, a 13-year-old girl died. So what? That, that their life doesn't matter. By the way, black. A chosen, the chosen race. Okay? But it doesn't matter because it's only black criminals that they care about. Okay. Then you had the case in Columbus with this uh, Makia, whatever her name is, Bryant, uh, was about to stab another black girl. And the police caught her and shot her. And she died and the victim didn't die. And they're outraged. They're happy the police weren't by the 13-year-old. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. That is what the other side believes in. They've always believed in it. Because it's not just at the policing end. We point out every day these stories of juveniles that don't get punished. Just yesterday, the New York Times post, uh, New York Post posted this. April 15th, a pair of juveniles shot a man in the groin. He didn't die. He was cut loose. They were cut loose without posting any bail. While the Capitol Hill protesters are held without the opportunity to post bail, the other end of the spectrum, for simple trespassing. Because they have the political will to break laws, break humanity, break natural law, they have no problem. Where do we have our side speaking up with equal and opposing force? The record number of juveniles getting killed from criminals. These people are demonic. They're satanic. They are pure evil. Leftists in this era are not just wrong, foolish, naive. They are evil. They are worse than Al-Qaeda. They, 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 they are sick Murderous thugs. They glorify murder and spit on victims. They are terrible human beings. Where's the political party that represents our side? We don't have it. They are pushing in every red state more and more sealing, expunging of records of juveniles. No no holding them pre-trial. This is where we are. This is where we are. You know, Reagan's task force in um, 1981 on victims of crime, he noted the dichotomy between the way we treat juvenile victims versus juvenile criminals. Very powerful. Here's what the task force wrote. 40 years ago. The criminal justice system is disturbingly inconsistent in the way it treats juvenile victims and juvenile victimizers. This divergence exists in part because society has developed two independent systems based on widely divergent presuppositions. If a child is a victim, the child is expected to come to an adult court open to the public and behave like an adult, speak like an adult, comprehend like an adult, and meet adult standards. The motivation underlying this treatment is the protection of adult suspects against testimony of children who are considered less trustworthy to, or accurate than adults. The juvenile system, on the other hand, 
The juvenile justice system, on the other hand, begins with the premise that those who have not reached adulthood cannot be truly held accountable for their actions they do not intend to do harm and will reform if shown the error of their ways. As a result, in many jurisdictions, even violent and frequent dangerous conduct is not considered criminal and is evaluated behind closed doors. Society is paying a tremendous price for the system. The task force suggests that the different treatment of juvenile victims and juvenile victimizers be carefully reevaluated. Well, folks, 40 years later, not only has it not been reevaluated, that dichotomy has been exacerbated. Think about that very powerful statement that juvenile victims, you're treated like an adult. You're a criminal. It's essentially legal. And notice the degree of culpability. Nowadays, children are regarded as culpable, mature, and fully developed for everything. So 16-year-olds, according to the animals, that's what we'll just call them, a bunch of maggots. That's, that's what, they're not leftists, they're not communists, they're maggots. So according to the maggots, 16-year-olds are old enough to vote. 12-year-olds are old enough to get an abortion without consent. Eight-year-olds are old enough to get a castration sex change operation. But, and and two-year-olds are old enough to be culpable for the spread of COVID even when they don't spread it and have to wear masks and are criminal if they don't. Dragged off a plane. But a 17-year-old or whatever that commits robbery after robbery and assault after assault and murder after murder. That is legal. They don't know what they're doing. The science says that their brain is not fully developed. Again, we don't live in a country of the rule of law. It's the rule of political will. Only one side has it. It's that simple. It's that simple. Couple more stories I wanted to touch on today that just continue our discussion from yesterday. A lot it, it's it's gained a lot of traction. A lot of people are talking about it. My column about maybe we should abolish the police because they're already not deterring criminals. And then when we inevitably have to deal with the criminals that they are not deterring and the criminal justice system is letting out. When we defend ourselves, if we're white and the perpetrator is black, we're screwed and the police arrest us. There's a lot of these cases going on, but I want to highlight one from our friends at Alpha News in Minnesota. They, they, they track crime. BLM blocks Stillwater men from getting home. Police intervene and detain him. When BLM blocked the Minnesota man from his home, police intervened, arresting the man. Okay, BLM protested Saturday outside the home of a county attorney responsible for bringing charges against former Brooklyn Center police officer Kim Potter, who recently shot Dante uh, Wright, apparently by accident. The protest was designed to pressure the attorney into upgrading Potter's existing second-degree manslaughter charge to mur murder charge. About 100 people turned out totally um, obstructing Stillwater Avenue. That is a crime. After nearly two hours of protesting, the BLM activists began two hours they weren't cleared. The BLM activists began to march down the road towards 4th Street, where they encountered a driver trying to reach his home. As the driver attempted to turn onto Stillwater Avenue, he was blocked by three motorcyclists and a yellow-vested protest organizer told him he would not be allowed to drive to his home. I live right here, the men exclaimed. Um, 
A minor scuffle ensued as the biker shoved the man and the man shoved back. The officers quickly intervened, detaining the man, putting him in the back of a squad car, and moving his vehicle out of the way so the BLM march could continue. You tell me, folks. You tell me, folks, that I'm wrong about abolishing the police. Outside of maybe rural areas. Now, maybe you could say the police were doing him a favor because they thought they'd BLM would beat him up and that was just a way of protecting him. I don't know. But this is really bad. Stillwater PD Chief Brian Muller said, the crowd is exercising its First Amendment right and not breaking any laws. Police will block the road to ensure... Drivers don't drive through the crowd? Um, this is a residential neighborhood. You need a permit. You have a First Amendment right to be equally afforded a permit. And they block off streets if, if it makes sense to do it. But no other group of people... Could you imagine for a moment if you had Trump supporters blocking off unilaterally without a permit... <clears throat> you know, not standing even on sidewalks and disturbing the peace, but I mean, blocking the street so much you can't get home. Residential neighborhood. First Amendment right. This is where we are, folks. This is going to happen more and more. And the more they beat down on police, not only are they going to pull back from going after the KKK. But in order to kind of like get in the good graces of the media <clears throat> and the mayors and whatever, they're actually going to go to the other end of the spectrum and, and go out of their way to start arresting anyone that comes up against them. And again, I'm not even talking about people going out and beating up the BLM people, which should be done and they have the right to do that, given what they're doing. We're talking about just a guy trying to get home and not get lynched. This is K this is Jim Crow. This is KKK. And the police are nothing but a tool for it now. At least if you have anarchy and they're just able to block streets and set up checkpoints, we're able to clear them out. But the police ensure they could violate the law and we can't even have basic self-defense and life, liberty, and property. Because again, it's not about the rule of law. They might bastardize and say, oh, First Amendment. What, and this guy doesn't have life, liberty, and property to get home and drive on the street? No, it's political will. And the political will says that whites are chattel and some blacks, remember, it's not all of them, black criminals are God. That is the political will. Where is the party and movement to provide an equal and opposing force to rigorously oppose that immorality? The answer is it doesn't exist. The same way it's not there on masks and COVID fascism and transgenderism. Yesterday, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, dirtbag, dirtbag governor, 
vetoed, um, I believe it's HB 1323, the mask bill, barring mask mandates in North Dakota, and he vetoed the transgender sports bill. Governor of Idaho vetoed the emergency powers bills. Now, both those states do have the right to recall, but Idaho is really difficult, very high threshold, very short period of time. I think North Dakota has more time. There is some sort of an effort, and we're going to be in touch. Doug Burgum needs to be recalled. That needs to be a very important effort. But folks, this is where we are. Then you might think, okay, let's get a good governor. 90% of the governors are bad. Okay, let's go to Florida, where you have a good governor. He'll certainly sign the bill to bar men and female sports. Guess what? The state Senate blocked the House passed bill, just like they gutted his E-Verify bill last year. So the stars never align. We have 23 trifectas with 19 supermajorities in the legislatures. But really, we don't have a single one. Not one. It's either the governor screws us, one legislative chamber screws us. Here you have in Florida, a governor that's popular. He defeated the media. Even some of the mainstream media is starting to admit, yeah, like he kind of got the better of us on COVID. He stood up and won. You would think you would just ride his coattails. God forbid, should you fight as a member of the legislature against a dirtbag governor of your own party. But at least here you have the governor doing it for you to just ride it. Nope, they oppose it. It's all about political will, and we don't have that. We don't have it. You know, even when it comes to, what's it called? Um, uh, Constitution carry, which is the one issue they hang over us to vote Republican. Do you know that it looks like the Texas... um. The, the constitutional carry, I believe, is going to die in the Senate there. It's not even going to pass. And the sports bill, you know, the transgender sports, is going to die in the Texas House. One after another. This is why I'm kicking myself. I didn't, you know, didn't get our teams up in place. And hopefully they'll be ready by next year. But again... I, I question how much we could even accomplish without forming a new party. I don't understand the argument for not forming a new party. What do you expect to accomplish? You can't win within this party. They're all like that. They're all like that. You have one side that has one rule of engagement. If we will it, We shall have it. There's no court. There's no statute. There's no constitution. There's no studies, data, math, science, sanity, biology. We want it. We do it. We have it. We have another side that's whatever the other side wants, they shall have it, but will rhetorically fight against the hypothetical next step of the Overton window, and then when the window moves over there, that's a fait accompli, and then they talk about the next thing. I know this is depressing, but I gotta give it to you 100 proof. Now, folks, there's one other story I wanna share with you to punctuate 
this point about political will versus the rule of law. Throughout the entire COVID fascism, we've all been asking, almost like a rape victim, this can't be right. This can't be happening to me. You you can't get away with this. No, I mean, someone's going to stop this, right? Nope. Well, I mean, doesn't the law say you can't do this, Constitution? How do you do this? Well, one of the things that is pretty black and white that everyone knows is that the mRNAs that are not really vaccines but are being billed as vaccines are authorized by the FDA under emergency use authorization. And pursuant to statute, it's as clear as day, it's experimental use, so you're able to market it and bring it to market, but you certainly can't make a medical device mandatory that is experimental. Okay, I mean, so it would be egregious for them to do this, but if they were to make it legal, they would have to take the emergency use off and give it official regular authorization before you could even talk about um, mandating it. Now, obviously, that would violate the Constitution. And we're all sitting and having this debate over vaccine passports. You know, like we always do, we debate and we gird our loins as if it's like a battle three months from now, six months from now, a year to two years from now. The left's not like, hmm, let me engage in a legal battle, whether it's in a court or in a legislature. No, they just do. So the reality is they're skipping the the, the vaccination passport, like a, a synchronized document that's standardized. But they're saying you can't get a job here. You can't come to the colleges. They're doing this everywhere. They're doing it. And it's not, the law is not being enforced. And I warned people, I said, look, the vaccine is no different than masks. It's a medical device approved by FDA under EUA. We were okay with a year of mandating that. That was against the law and certainly against the Constitution, natural rights. So I I, I posed the question a couple weeks ago, I said, What's to stop them from just doing the same thing on the vaccines? And the answer is there isn't. They're doing it already. It's the same thing like with Common Core. They just don't call it Common Core anymore. So they don't call it a vaccine passport. But you can't get the employment or the service or whatever unless you show proof that you're vaccinated. I had people email me about a, a river cruise that they're mandating it. I'm like, what do I do? I need a lawsuit. Someone emailed me from South Carolina. <clears throat> Um, <clears throat> Medical University of South Carolina. They sent out an email to their healthcare team. After much deliberation, MUSC Health has decided to make it an expectation that they use the word that all care team members be vaccinated against COVID nineteen. And um, <clears throat> they basically make it very clear that effective Im- immediately, all new higher care team members joining. MUSC, with an offer date after April 14th, are expected to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. That's it. They're they're just doing it. Like, dude, people are dying from it. There's so many questions. It's emergency use. You want to get it, that's fine. Why shove it on me? No, because that's what we want, and you're going to get it. This is the society we live in. But it's worse than that. Government is doing it. This is from a Facebook post in a private 
group, and I need to look into this more, but some of you might have seen articles out, um, you know, in the media where the military has been lamenting the lack of vaccinations among soldiers, like only 35%, and and they're really upset about it. Do you think they're going to take that sitting down and just like, yeah, you know, you could go on? No, they're tracking them. They're finding who's not getting it. And um, so she, the, this woman who has a son who is in the Navy, well, it's happening, moms. My sailor has told me he will have to take the vaccine next week. His command has said that all sailors are soon going to be required to take it or else there will be no leaving the city for leave, no leaving the ships at port or no leaving base. I honestly don't know how this is even legal, but it is what it is. He was going to re-enlist for a third time, but he's now saying he probably won't now. I'm trying to understand. I know they have to take vaccinations when they deploy different countries, but this is different because those shots are FDA approved and have been, you know, have years of research. Um, I will be praying for our, all of our sailors and our military personnel. So they're doing it, folks. They're doing it. Okay? So, the point is, on our side, we need strategies that speak to the severity of what the other side is doing. And one of the things is, you gotta place criminal penalties on places that do that. Now, the military, the feds control it. I don't know what you can do outside of a lawsuit. And even then, they won't listen to it anyway. But with the so-called private institutions, I would criminalize it. I mean, you got to fight fire with fire. We can't continue doing this. We can't try to have some modicum of rule of law to fix when they're not following the law. We have to fight political will with political will. But think about that, folks. Sailors that have barely died from this. They're in their young 20s or whatever. This is what they're mandating. You know, Andy Boston, my, my friend who's a cardio, cardiovascular uh, epidemiologist from Brown University, he sent me an article from, what was it, 2009 during swine flu, H1N1, where they said advice to flu-stricken college students, stay out of circulation. And if you have to, wear a mask. They're telling the person who had the swine flu, not every human being, the person who had it. And they wrote in the article that they are five times more vulnerable to this than the flu because H1N1s target younger people. I don't know why. I don't know the science behind it, but it's the opposite of what we have here. Much more. We lived through it. We never did any of this. The worst they said is, yeah, if you have it, stay home. Or if you, and, and then even then, they didn't like mandate. They say, you feel you need to be among people, wear a, mask, a surgical mask. It was like, okay, try that. Basically, nobody has died in a single college campus anywhere three hospitalizations or something out of hundreds of thousands. 
but it doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. The will is what matters. Chicago Tribune yesterday, researchers have launched a study to find out if COVID-19 vaccines are causing menstrual cycle changes after hundreds of women notice irregularities. This is just the tip of the iceberg. And yet they're mandating it. They are evil, evil people. You tell me, you tell me how these people are better than Al-Qaeda. Do we have the political will to battle the domestic terrorists of our time? It's up to us. It's time we form these Liberty Strike Force teams, and the goal is to do whatever it takes to pressure, to fight in whatever way we need to, to achieve our results. Conservative results. But we must be very liberal in political will and strategy. A lot more I left on the table. I'm going to be a little bit sparse next week because I'm going to be out in front sight Nevada. I'm going to try to pre-tape a show, do one out there, but we're certainly going to miss at least one next week, if not two. So I do apologize for that. Special show tomorrow with Dr. Colleen Huber on what works and what doesn't work for COVID. Her new book, 500 Studies on COVID. That'll be exciting. Let me know your questions for her. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.